from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I understand there's an argument to be made against this, and it sounds like your wife is making that argument against it. How do they handle it in these other places where they're not being deluged with television commercials? Well, it was I was surprised to learn that only New Zealand in the United States allow for television or other uh, sorts of commercials. They're banned in Europe. Uh, they're banned in most of the world other than, again, New Zealand and ourselves. It's your physicians making a recommendation, but ultimately it comes down to your insurance company, who a lot of times will negotiate with your physician, um, that is ultimately deciding whether you're going to get the branded drug or the generic or drug one versus drug two. And that's one of the things about a prescription medicine that most people don't realize. I'm Sarah Fenske. Why does an EpiPen that used to cost $50 now set you back more than 600 why is insulin so expensive that many diabetics have to ration it just to stay alive? And why has the overall cost of prescription drugs soared in the U.S. in the last two decades, even as other nations haven't seen similar increases? Those questions aren't just ripped from the headlines. They're also the focus of Michael Kinch's new book. He is a vice chancellor at Washington University and the director of its Center for Drug Discovery. And with Lori Wyman, he is the co-author of The Price of Health, The Modern Pharmaceutical Enterprise, and The Betrayal of a History of Care. And he joins us today to discuss it. Michael Kinch, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Michael, you've written books about the history of vaccination and the incredible innovations being made in cancer treatment. What made you want to focus on the sometimes ugly economics that underpin healthcare? Well, frankly, it wasn't my idea. Hmm. Um, I'm a scientist and I'm a data guy. And I was talking with my wife, who in full disclosure works for Pfizer. And we were talking about drug pricing. And she said, you know, you really need to write a book about that. And I said, I don't know anything about it. And she said, that's exactly why you need to write it. Go in objective. You know, I, I'm a science wonk. Um, go in and, and really look at it with naive eyes and see what's going on. And it was revealing because I went in as a scientist, assuming that science was the problem. Mm -hmm. And it is to some degree, but it's also largely an economics problem. And it's a sort of human problem. Um, and we can talk about, you know, sort of what are the major drivers for those costs? Yeah. And I want to talk about those drivers in just a moment. But, but first thing that really struck me reading this is just how maddeningly opaque so much of this industry is. I mean, you really did your homework on this, but they did not make it easy for you. Were you surprised how hard it was to just get accurate information. Unbelievably frustrated. And I would say that is reflected in our writing. And it's reflected in actually the shortest chapter. And my plan was to make it one paragraph. And it ended up being three or four chapter or three or four paragraphs or three or four pages, mm. which is the title of the chapter is how is a drug priced? Mm. Because we figured there was some complex formula that went into this and, you know, some three dimensional math. And in reality, it was simply what the market will bear, or the other way of saying that is as much as they can get away with. But the opacity is at all levels. It's at the manufacturers, it's at the distributors, and it's maddening because 
while it's a financial game to some of these folks, it's life or death for people that can't afford their medicines. You know, that chapter where, where you came to that conclusion that the question is, what will the market bear? My jaw just dropped, but I think it, it really helps us understand what's going on here. And that's in many cases, this is greed. Um, there's a lot of greed of individual actors, but something that kept striking me again and again reading this book is the role of Wall Street and just investors in this. Uh, did that come as a surprise to you as well? It did. And I would say that came as a surprise and you know, not to just pick on the pharmaceutical industry, but what really struck me was that it used to be that to develop a medicine was one company and maybe to distribute it was another. Now there are three, four, five, six companies involved in that pipeline. And the consequence is that all of them want to maximize their profits, all the shareholders, which is oftentimes, by the way, you and me <laughs> want to maximize their profits. And the consequence is that not only has this become more expensive, but when there are six or seven different players involved in it, they can all point fingers at the others and deflect the blame from themselves onto others. So that's a real thing driving this, is the pressures of Wall Street for the, these publicly traded companies. But as you dug into this, you also looked at all these different people pointing fingers at each other. And, and one of the questions you really get into in this book, and this is something I feel like even people who know nothing about this subject will kind of quote at you. This is this idea that these drug companies spend more on marketing than than they do on research and development. Who knew that was such a controversial question? What were you able to ultimately find out about whether or not that's even true? So it looks like about eight to 10 years ago, the, the sales and marketing costs actually exceeded research and development, and it hasn't gotten any better. Hmm. And you know, this is a, a frustration that we have in my own household, where my wife and I profoundly disagree on the importance of all of these television commercials that just saturate us with information. And on one hand, the argument is, well, it, it uh, gives people information they can use when they go to their physician. On the other hand, it's excessive. And, and it drives up the costs. And the fact that these research and development companies have basically now become marketing engines, much more than research and development companies, is a concern. And it was also surprising to me to find out that this is not how it's done in other civilized countries. Um, I understand there's an argument to be made against this, and it sounds like your wife is making that argument against it. How do they handle it in these other places where they're not being deluged with television commercials? Well, it was I was surprised to learn that only New Zealand uh, in the United States allow for television or other uh, sorts of commercials. Hmm. They're banned in Europe. Uh, they're banned in most of the world other than, again, New Zealand and ourselves. So they don't have to deal with that. But the other part of it that really shocked me was if you look at research and development costs and all the cost of these advertising, it still is probably not the main reason why prices are going up. It just comes down to that, what will the market bear? And it's a big game of chicken. We keep increasing the prices until such point as people will finally say, no, I'm not going to pay that. And we don't know where that game of chicken ends, but it, presumably it's got to end pretty soon because the prices are getting just out of control. 
So one of the many, I keep saying, this is one of the interesting things in this book. There are so many interesting things in this book because you're just peeling apart layer after layer. But something I think is important to talk about here is that there have been various efforts to combat this. There have been all sorts of well-meaning policies to the point that you write at one point, the working title of this book was Unintended Consequences. And so it was striking how at sometimes very well-intentioned things ended up actually driving prices up. One of those things that, that caught my eye was your attention. Uh, to the Orphan Drug Act. What are some of the ways that this very well-meaning thing is now leading to much higher drug prices? Well, so it turns out that the Orphan Drug Act, which was enacted by Henry Waxman uh, in the the 1980s, was a very well-intended act to try to address diseases that had been neglected by by the pharmaceutical industry and to provide incentives for that. Mm -hmm. Well, what's happened is basically what is now called sausage slicing. So the Orphan Drug Act only kicks in, and it gives some very lucrative incentives to companies that or that develop products for afflictions, diseases that cause um, problems in less than 200,000 Americans. Hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea. And that was meant to address these rare metabolic diseases, these genetic diseases that, that some, some children, for example, are born with. Well, the sausage slicing is that now if you want to develop a new drug, you generally come up with a formula to say, what patient population will get me below 200,000? Mm -hmm. And this is particularly prevalent in oncology. So you may have a drug against breast cancer, but you're not going to go after breast cancer because that's quite that's much more common than 200,000 per year. So you take a type, a subset of breast cancer. And if that still has too many, you take a subset of that subset. Now, the insidiousness of it is you can then say, I have to charge a lot because I don't have a lot of customers. So I'm not going to be able to sell many units. But your intention is actually to sell it to everyone that might have breast cancer. So, and you're not going to lower the price once you get that larger market. And because of some special ways in which oncology reimbursement is structured, they can basically get away with doing this on the cheap. And the consequence is that now oncology drugs in particular are routinely six digits and now approaching or exceeding now seven digit price tags. So hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for a single course of therapy with an oncology drug. And they wouldn't be able to charge those kind of prices if they hadn't found a way to say this is only going to help this narrow slice of people. It's basically a way of, of using this law to maximize their profits. Yes, and, and it's been utilized in that direction, which is one unintended consequence. And then a second unintended consequence is that there are certain diseases that affect large numbers of people. For example, antibiotic resistance, um, weight control, um, weight loss medicines, where there's no incentive now to actually put uh, the research and development resources, both the people and the dollars, into those indications, even though Americans are obviously combating infectious diseases, which we've been reminded of in the last year or so, but also things like metabolic diseases and weight gain. So I, I want to um, take this back to, you know, how people are abusing this, because I feel like this is such an example, uh, again, ripped from the headlines. This has to do with the company Gilead and how they were going to get around this Orphan Drug Act when everybody was terrified about COVID-19. Uh, walk us through what happened there. So Gilead basically had developed a medicine that um, didn't work. And so they, this is um, a drug called remdesivir, and it didn't work for their intended consequence. And so they, they were granted 
special license to be able to use the Orphan Drug Act um, when COVID-19 broke out, but they did it. They applied for the orphan drug status really quickly because they knew that this pandemic, this COVID-19, was likely to exceed 200,000 Americans in a fairly short period of time. So they rushed it through. And again, the, the intention of the Orphan Drug Act was to address neglected diseases, diseases where there's a need for therapies and, and provide some incentive to get that. There was no need for incentive for a COVID-19 drug. And, and to sort of make the situation worse, it turns out that the Gilead drug probably doesn't really convey much, if any, beneficial effect anyway. Uh, that's a little bit of a problem there. That's a little bit of a problem, especially because part of the Orphan Drug Act gives credits for research and development. So it's not that you're getting kind of the, the company's getting a discount. They're getting all of their money back. And this mm-hmm. was a big problem, particularly when, in many cases, the same the federal government was also paying those research costs. So it, there are opportunities for um, abuse that have sadly been exploited. And so you say that because people can't claim that something is an orphan drug, they don't want to invest in it. Really? Like something like weight loss. It feels like if you could figure out a drug that would would help people with weight loss without having all the harmful side effects we've seen from past iterations, that this would be a blockbuster that you could just laugh all the way to the bank just by charging a lot of people a little. They don't see any way they can make this work with this current model. Well, unfortunately, the system as it exists now doesn't really benefit and doesn't allow for that. And that factors in who's making the decision to pay for it. And that's one of the things about a prescription medicine that most people don't realize. And that is that, you know, you're not deciding what you're, what medicine you're getting. It's your physicians making a recommendation, but ultimately it comes down to your insurance company who a lot of times will negotiate with your physician um, that is ultimately deciding whether you're going to get the branded drug or the generic or drug one versus drug two. And this is, you know, part of the big problem. And we have to really, and this is part of our rationale, we need to clarify and people need to be more aware of how these decisions are made, why these decisions are being made. You know, I'm all in favor of a free market economy, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't hurt people and doesn't have these unintended consequences. We're talking to Michael Kinch. He's a vice chancellor at Washington University. Um, And he and Lori Wyman have co-authored the new book we're talking about today. It's called The Price of Health, The Modern Pharmaceutical Enterprise and the Betrayal of a History of Care. This book is an eye-opener on so many levels. I want to talk about something else that that began with with good intentions and ends up being yet another way that that people are reaping profit here. This has to do with the rise of generics. Um, It feels like an example of, of this might be the EpiPen story. What is actually happening that EpiPens ended up so expensive? Well, with a lot of generic medicines, and it's not unique to EpiPens. We've also seen this with, with, for example, childhood leukemia drugs, where you'll have a drug that goes generic, and the idea behind the generic drug laws, which, by the way, the same gentleman who did the uh, Orphan Drug Act uh, did pioneering legislation to open up generic medicines because there were actually laws prohibiting generic medicines in many states prior to the 1970s. Hmm. So generic medicines, as you get more and more competition in the space, there's less and less profit to be made because the margins are gonna get smaller because there's a lot of competition. So some companies decide to leave. And in the case of the EpiPen, in in the period, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, in a remarkably short period of time, like six months to a year, it went from five different companies that were essentially making the same product, competitors Mm -hmm. to the EpiPen, to Mylan being alone in making the EpiPen, and they figured if they've got no competition, 
we're going to we're going to increase the price they combine that with a lobbying effort to a lot of different state governments to say you know you should never have one epipen you should always have a backup so they required everyone to buy two epipens at a time and pretty soon you or your insurance company is shelling out thousands of dollars for a single pack of epipens which by the way go bad after a few years and you have to buy them again i mean an epipen without question can save someone's life but you run into the the problem that without competition the EpiPen's price just completely went out of control. So I'm just shaking my head at just the horror of somebody deciding, yeah, we're going to raise this price now that we've got this to ourselves. Couldn't another company come in and say, I'm going to undercut the EpiPen and this would start the cycle all over again. We now get a ton of generics and that solves the problem. Well, and we have started to see that. But one of the things that's remarkable is it takes a lot of money and a fair amount of time to get a drug approved by the FDA. Mm. Even a generic medicine, if it's if it's formulated in a particular way, but also Myelin, who developed or, or at least sold the EpiPen, had a whole bunch of patents that they staked around it to prevent competition or at least to minimize competition. Now, they have been facing that competition. Other people are making the EpiPen and there are there's been a rise of nonprofit pharmacies or pharmaceutical companies with the idea of we're going to basically make um, a drug at cost or charge it just above cost. And, you know, so that those kind of ideas are being explored. But historically, those sorts of um, innovations have not ended up changing anything. Hmm. So you talk a bit about the COVID-19 pandemic and what that has shown us about this system that you are already digging so deeply into when this happened. You suggest that one takeaway from that is that perhaps some of these regulatory process could be streamlined. And I believe this coming from you because I know you've been such a defender of the FDA and the importance of not rushing Operation Warp Speed. But do you feel like there's some ways that we've made this, this uh, uh, prospect of getting a new drug approved, this is harder and more expensive than it needs to be? It, it, yes. Um, and I, I'm actually very optimistic that the COVID-19 situation gives us an opportunity to rethink the system. Hmm. So, uh, and from a multiple levels, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on AstraZeneca for a minute because I've been picking on AstraZeneca for, for more than a year now, so I should at least stay consistent. <laughs> so, and, and part of the reason, frankly, is that AstraZeneca, Lori Wyman, my co-author on this book and I, we met while working at a company called Metamune that was acquired by AstraZeneca. And that's actually a microcosm of the fact that the industry has been undergoing amazing amounts of consolidation so that, for example, the net number of companies that, that do research and development on new medicines has dropped by more than half in just the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's unsustainable. But if you look further, it turns out that AstraZeneca was acquiring Metamune because they wanted to be nimble and they wanted to not be stodgy and they were looking to Metamune to change that. Well, exactly the opposite occurred. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that is that there's been a complete lack of transparency as demonstrated by by AstraZeneca's um, really poor actions uh, over the past full year now. But all of that being said, we've seen companies come out of nowhere. Moderna is a company that probably most people had not heard of. Mm -hmm. BioNTech, which partnered up with Pfizer. And they've had a partnership with the FDA that has allowed for truly remarkable progress to be made. And this was being made because these, these organizations were working together, private sector, public sector coming together, academics were contributing. And I think we can keep that spirit, we can move it forward. 
one of the things that I've been working on for the last more than a decade now is something known as E-Rooms Law, which is the idea that the cost to develop a new medicine has been doubling about every four to five years. Mm. And largely that's because of inefficiencies. So let's figure out where those inefficiencies are, clean them up, and we can get those you know, medicines for weight loss. We can get those medicines, those anti antibi new antibiotics. We can get those much more affordably and we can make them available to all the people who need them. So I, I'm hopeful hearing about that, and, and I love that you're working on this, but this book also made me realize just how many different things need to be uncoiled um, and just how, again, Wall Street will always find a way to get around these, these well-intentioned ideas. In our final minute here, um, what's something you'd point to or, or something that gives you hope as we look at just the totality of this problem and what needs to change? Well, my biggest hope is that, as you mentioned, this is like peeling back the, the layers on an onion. And we have, I, with, with our book, uh, we've basically finally, I hope, gotten at least as far as we can go without uh, lawsuits and everything else to open up companies. But we can now see what the problems are. And once you know what the problems are, you can now start to address them. And I think that, again, in the past, the frustration has been that there are so many different types of industries, entire industries involved, they can all point the finger at one another. Instead of pointing fingers, let's fix it. Um, and I think that that's where the big hope is, is that as we continue to peel back the layers of the onion, this book alone isn't going to do it, but as we get more and more pressure to do so, that will allow us to fix the problems. And just super quick, the best example of that is a company called Zenny which I replaced my $400 pair of glasses with a $5 pair of glasses from Zenny. That shows that something in the health space that's personalized can be done inexpensively and you still end up getting a good quality product. And no, I don't get any money from Zenny. <laughs> well, Michael Kinch, you've given me new hope. Your eyeglasses have given me new hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Michael Kinch is the author of The Price of Health, The Modern Pharmaceutical Enterprise, and The Betrayal of a History of Care. I'm Sarah Fenske. Thank you for joining us today. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.